0: So we're taking a break from the series um, in Jonah and looking at another passage in the Old Testament in 1 Kings. And I'm going to draw from this passage a three metaphors. So using this passage as a background, or as a, that's right, as a background, I will uh, look at The importance of defending or cherishing our inheritance as fathers, because this role in society is a diminishing one, one that is losing a lot of ground, and uh, I'm going to maybe ruffle some feathers today, and that's okay, God's Word does that at times, it ruffles our feathers, Um, but it's... God's Word, and we want to be able to say yes and amen to what his word tells us. So the passage I have before me is 1 Kings 21. And we're going to be reading the first ten verses. I would encourage you to read the entire chapter uh, when you have the time to do so. It's a fascinating chapter. But we'll read the first ten verses of 1 Kings chapter 21, one 1- to 10. So would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Now it came about after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, so that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house. I will give you a better vineyard in place of it. If you prefer, I will give you what it is worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I would give you the inheritance of my fathers. And so Ahab entered his house sullen. And furious because of the answer that Naboth the Jezreelite had given to him, since he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face away and ate no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? And so he said to her, it is because I was speaking to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and saying to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in place of it. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel's wife said to him, do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And so she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, sent the letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she had written in, in the letters saying, proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men opposite him and have them testify against him saying, you cursed God and the king. And then... Take him out and stone him to death. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word, for your goodness in our lives, and for the gift of fatherhood. And I pray, Lord, that indeed you would grant us grace to stand on this ground that you have given us as fathers and to um, uphold the virtues of of this office, of this role in society as your word lays them out for us. I pray for this, for us, and for all the men who will be following this message, for all of us who serve at a time of confusion and chaos. Grant us grace, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. As I was thinking about um, the role of fathers and the importance of fathers, and as I've been looking back at this role over the years and how it's been um, chewed away at, you know, it's been it's been a diminishing role, if you would. Um, I remember looking at sitcoms and saying how a fathers were portrayed as either weak or as um, and coherent or as incapable of running a household and so forth, you know. And I remember seeing that, and I said, this is a dangerous trend. And you never see a father who knows what he's doing, I mean, in sitcoms, or a father that really is respected, is in charge of the household. We had those sitcoms when I was a child, but then slowly that changed. And today we live in a society when the role of the father is uh, undermined. Uh, Not too long ago, I saw an interview with Jordan Peterson the host was asking Jordan Peterson about the role of men in society. And and so she was saying, so it's okay to be a man, right? And he said, well, it's more than okay. He said, it's necessary. You need men in society. You need men because they're the ones who keep your infrastructure going. They're the ones who go out to war and, and defend your country when needed. They're the ones who need to lay their lives down. They're the ones who climb up hydro poles. They're the bricklayers. They're the ones that keep things going in society. They're the ones who are the fathers and are needed. You need men. And he was basically saying this because the idea that is prevalent today is that we can do away with man, um, man, could be soft it can be charming but you know that that masculinity is not needed in fact it's called toxic masculinity and um, jordan peterson has made it his mission to remind everyone that men are needed and women are needed and in their respective roles and he's made it his mission going from country to country speaking about this in important topic. You see, if you are, uh, you come out as a gay person, then you're celebrated. Or if you come out as a trance, then you are given a platform and people applaud you. And But if you are a man, if you are a father, well, there's not much importance given to that, unfortunately. We still have Father's Day. And uh, I mean, most of us, I think... I'm talking about in society, give it some importance, but as I said, it's been a diminishing one over the years. Now, it is true that men uh, have abused their role. That's without question. Um, But to paint every man with the same brush is dishonest and, of course, um, harmful, to say the least. See, what happens is that uh, people put... Men in certain categories, for example, and this happens in all across uh, in, uh, all across the board right so you'll say, for example, you have men are seen as the oppressors and then women are seen as the oppressed and um or you'll say, for example, um, the white people are the oppressors and colored or ethnic are the oppressed um, the heterosexual okay is The oppressor and the trance are the oppressed. And so it's always with oppressors and oppressed. This is the thing that's going on now. It's very much in vogue. And so this is why there is this movement against uh, masculinity. Called, of course, toxic masculinity. And so Peterson has made this point to correct this twisted view, if you would and bring in the proper perspective. Now, of course, he doesn't come up with this perspective. It's a Judeo-Christian value. So I'm going to use this passage here before me that we just read together in First King as a backdrop and use it as a metaphor, three metaphors. Ahab is one. Then we have the wife, Jezebel. And then lastly, we have Nabus. And each one is a metaphor of, uh, of something. They represent something. Now, just to give you the story, the background story, Naboth lives in Samaria. Now, Samaria is another name for Israel. So, Israel, Samaria, Ephraim, these are synonymous. And the king at that time is Ahab. And um, Ahab um, had his eye on this vineyard that belonged to Naboth. And he says, you know what, this would be a great place to have a vegetable garden. And so, he approaches or matter yet, he summons, because he's the king, he summons Naboth and tells him, look, I'll give you either money or I'll give you a better vineyard. And of course, Naboth refuses. And, um, and the story begins and it launches in a, in a way that is very surprising because at the end what happens is that Jezebel has Naboth killed. So that's the gist of it so that he can get finally his vineyard. Now, let's go into the metaphors. First, Ahab, who does he represent? He represents a weak man. For example, in verse 4, we read, So Ahab entered his house sullen and furious because of the answer that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had given to him, since he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned his face away and ate no food. So what you see here is the king of the north. He's a king, but you see him sullen and depressed because he can't get his way. Now, he was an unusual king. He was a very weak king, right? He didn't exercise leadership. He was weak and manipulated, but on the other hand, he was an evil king because we read in 1 Kings 21-25... There certainly was no one like Ahab who gave himself over to do evil in the sight of the Lord. So he was an evil king and did not walk in the ways of the Lord. There were just times in his life that he obeyed, but it was a feigned obedience at best. The kings of the north were all wicked, all ungodly. Ahab led the lot. He was the worst of the bunch. See, so he was a self-willed man nothing more than a child in a man's body now that's the epidemic that we have today now there's always been men who are childish men who are immature men who do not take responsibility that's i think something that has always been around but i think we have an increasing phenomenon of this uh of, the, of this kind of childish man um Men who don't have a clue what it means to be a leader, don't want to lay down their lives and serve, Uh, just like Ahab, they're just self-absorbed. They sulk, they behave like a child. Now, uh, in God's word, we're told that uh, to enter the kingdom of God, we must be children. But what does that mean? Does it mean we are to be childish, immature, well, no, because Paul specifically, writing to the Church of Corinth, who, which was a blessed church, it came behind a no-gift, as it says in 1 Corinthians, says these words in 1 Corinthians 13. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child and think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. So, why did he write this to the Church of Corinth? Because the Church of Corinth, and many many ways, was childish, and you see the childishness coming out in their gatherings. For example, there were people who wanted the spotlight on themselves. They wanted to be viewed and seen by others, and so they'd break out in tongues or prophecy or whatever, and there would would be many of these uh, manifestations, and Paul says you can't do that. You can't have more than three, two or three at most. So he brought in order, he brought in restraint so that people would not just be there to put on a show, right? So there's this trait of childishness of it's me, it's about me, is common in a child, but it should not be common in an adult, right? Or, for example, if someone would speak, another person would interrupt him because what he had to say, what he had on his heart, what he had as a revelation was now more important than what someone else was saying, right? Or, for example, at their Holy Communion, some would gorge themselves without any regard for those who were hungry. So this kind of childishness was prevalent in the church of Corinth. And this is why Paul writes these words. In First 1 Corinthians 14.20, he speaks about the difference between being childlike and childishness. When he says, brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. So we need to be childlike in which way? In the fact that we are not evil. We don't deceive. We don't want to hurt. We don't want to plot. That's what Paul is saying. In when it comes to hurting people, we should be childlike. But in thinking, in behavior, we are not to be childish. We are to be mature. A child doesn't wake up out of bed, right? A four year old doesn't get in I'm going to hurt my friend today. I mean, he doesn't do that. Even though he was hurt, he'll forgive. He'll quickly uh, overlook, right? He doesn't devise and scheme evil in his heart. And that's what Paul is saying. That's what God's Word is. So when it comes to childlikeness, we're childlike when it comes to plotting or scheming or devising evil against someone. But when it comes to maturity... We need to be men. We need to be mature. Um, A childish believer is one that doesn't accept correction. A childish man chafes under pressure. A childish man falls apart when things don't go his way. They react negatively to situations. They are easily offended. They don't keep going when the going gets tough. The opposite is true of a mature man. A mature man is one who welcomes Uh, correction, welcomes um, the correction that comes with life, difficulties, and trials. He listens, he learns, he seeks advice. A mature believer accepts responsibility. He doesn't run away when things get tough. That's the difference. Ahab was immature. Ahab was childish and self-absorbed as a child. I heard of one man who chose to walk away from his marriage rather than um, continue. Why? Because he grew up in a home where his mom and his sister served him hand and foot. They continued to do this for years. Then when he got married, he thought that his wife would continue to serve him hand and foot. When that didn't happen, well, he decided to opt out. I heard of another guy who uh, preferred to skateboard rather than Work at his marriage. And it's really odd when you see this. This is very common. Others who uh, spend hours playing video games, these are married men rather than taking care of their home. You see, but like I said, this childlike behavior, this immaturity has to be driven out of us. And we need to grow up and become men. Doesn't mean we're become like uh, joyless men. But it does mean we take responsibility. Uh, There's always been men like Ahab who have been childish and self-absorbed. God designed us fathers to take responsibility, not to run away, not to chafe under pressure, but to stick it through and to surround ourselves with other men who are examples for us. We're called to lead, to be the head of the home, to lay down our lives for our families. If Ahab speaks of men who are weak, uh, Jezebel speaks of, of uh, women or of wicked manipulators. And I say women in particular, and I'll explain why. Here was a woman by the name of Jezebel, and of her, in verse 7, it says, this is what she gives as encouragement to her husband, who was sulking, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. I will give it to you. Now, Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab, and uh, she was not a Hebrew. She came from Sidon, a neighboring country. When Ahab married her, she came with a dowry. The dowry was 450 false prophets of Baal and another 400 of Astart. These prophets quickly got to work and turned Israel into an idle, loving nation. That's what they did. And as his wife, she did not love her husband. She loved power and control. This was a deceitful woman with an agenda. She She was Machiavellian to the core. Deceit was the name of the game. There was no fear of God. This woman, even after fire came down from heaven following Elijah's prayer, and when the people of God realized that God, Yahweh, was the true God, she was unrepentant and she was vile towards the prophet Elijah. Now, think of how she went about to secure the vineyard, it was evil to the core. She delighted in doing evil. What did she do? She tells the nobles and the elders of the city of Israel, to gather the people and hold a special feast. Alright, so people would come together and to honor Naboth in a special way. To put him at the head table. Imagine that. So it was just an evil plot. And then to bring in two scoundrels who would testify. Why two? Because the, the law stated that only on the basis of two or three witnesses was anything established. So these two scoundrels would speak and slander him, basically, but it wasn't considered a slander, it was considered truth, saying that this man, Naboth, had cursed both God and the king. Can you imagine? And so immediately after that, they took him out of the town or out of the village and they stoned him to death. Both he and his offspring, if he had any, were deprived of the inheritance and therefore the king would get it as a result. That's the plan that this woman had. So if Ahab is weak, Jezebel is strong, but in the wrong way. She was a wicked manipulator. Now, the Bible speaks of strong women. In Proverbs 31, we're told of the woman of worth, of great worth. She is strong. She provides for her home. She takes care of her children. She buys, she sells, she runs things, and she does it well. And she is praised. By her husband and by the people of the city who know her. She is praised because she fears the Lord. She is strong. She is not a weak woman. God is not endorsing weakness. Never do we see that in Scripture. But there is a strength that is wicked and, and manipulative. And that is a strength we see here in Jezebel. Um, think of how, for example the feminist movement in our day, has systematically changed the meaning of the role of woman and now even to what is a woman, to the definition of a woman. Not too long ago, there was an interview with the candidate for the U.S. Supreme Court, Katanji Brown Jackson. She was asked a very simple question. What is a woman? Very simple. And her answer, I cannot say what a woman is. That's where we've come to. I cannot say what a woman is. Why? Because today, every individual has the right to choose their gender. So gender is fluid. That is Jezebel at work. That is the feminist movement, and it's evil to the core. It goes against the very word of God. But it goes further than that. Uh, Look at the Concept of the nuclear family. Nuclear family is a husband, a wife, children. That's a nuclear family. That too is attacked. That model is ridiculed. Organizations have openly come out against the nuclear family, such as the BLM. They're not the only ones, but they've done it openly. We're living at a time when there is such contempt for the nuclear family, for what God's word defines as a man, for what God's word defines as a woman. And the feminist movement has systematically sold these ideas that men are oppressors and that the, uh, we don't need men. Now, I'm not denying that there haven't been cases where women have been mistreated and that men have definitely abused their role. But to take one brush and to paint everyone with that brush, every man, and to say that all men are oppressors, abusers, and misogynistic, and and sexist, and so forth, is just wrong. Wrong and dishonest. Um, Lena Dunham, who has built her name as a feminist, says this about men. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. In her recent tweet... She went as far as saying, I'd honestly rather fall into one million manholes than have one single man tell me to watch my step. That's pretty much where they stand. It's hatred against men, hatred against um, the nuclear family, hatred against what God defines as a man, as the head of the home, as the leader who is to lead and lay down his life for the home, and as the woman who is to submit to that leadership, not to be a doormat, but to submit as Christ submitted to the Father. The spirit of Jezebel is prevalent in our day. It is wicked, it is vile, and its intent is clear, to destroy what God's Word says a home should be like. And and when a woman like this does marry, she marries for the wrong reasons. She marries to control, she marries to seize power, she has other agendas, but not to actually build a home. God's word tells us that the woman who follow the ways of Jezebel will end up like this in Proverbs 14.1. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish one tears it down with her own hands. And that's what's happening today the home is being torn down by the feminist movement. And many men are either silent and therefore weak like Ahab and just, you know, go with the flow. Or uh, they've basically uh, lost uh, any voice and they have uh, no no say. And this is the, what's happening in our situation. So the father is t- attacked on these two fronts, one men who are weak, like Ahab, self-absorbed, pouting, and not assuming responsibility as they should, or it's attacked on the other front by the spirit of Jezebel that seeks to manipulate men to being something that they're not called to be, this bent on destroying the design that God has given us in his word. And then we have a third metaphor in this scripture, it's Naboth. Naboth is a warrior-like man. So we have Ahab, a weak man. We have Jezebel, a wicked manipulator. And Naboth, a warrior-like man. Verse 3, But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I would give you the inheritance of my fathers. It's it's just one verse. It's the only thing Naboth says in all of Scripture. And yet it is powerful. Naboth's answer may surprise us. We may ask, why not sell this land? I mean, for goodness sake, why die over a piece of land? Um, Is it really that important? Why not just get something else? Why not, in fact, give him the land altogether so that the king would be in his debt? (laughs) That's a good position to be in. Imagine the most powerful person in the kingdom being in your debt so that whenever you need something, you can go to the king and say, by the way, king, I... Remember when I gave you that land? Well, it's time to pay up. I need this. I need your help here. Right? He could have done that. He could have been an opportunistic, but he chose not to do any of that. Why? Naboth did not refuse to sell the land because he loved his land. Or, oh, I love this piece of land. It's I have a sentimental attachment. It reminds me of my, I don't know, my father, my grandfather, whatever it is. You know, Some people have this sentimental attachment. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not... What we see in Naboth. Naboth refused to sell the land because it was following God's word. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, it says, the land, this is God telling God's people, moreover shall not be sold permanently because the land is mine. You are only strangers and residents with me. So God's word is clear. Israel was... Given this piece of land, Israel meaning the nation, called Canaan. And as they were conquering cities after cities, right, under the leadership of Joshua, the land was being partitioned between the tribes, 12 tribes, and um, they were told these words when Moses was still alive You are not going to sell it. So your inheritance, once it's received, you're not going to give it to anybody else. You're going to keep it with your lineage. This was God's word. So Naboth took this seriously. That's why he says, God forbid. It's remarkable. Now, had he been fearful, he would have given up the land. Had he been opportunistic, he would have said, of course, O king, it's yours. Just remember me. But Naboth showed incredible strength of character. This is my inheritance. And as fathers, this is what we need to do. We need to say this, my role, what God has called me to do in my home, is my inheritance. We're not here to follow the trend of the society in which we live. We don't fall and capitulate and acquiesce to whatever's going on around us. We're here to go against the current. And that takes strength. It takes fortitude of soul. That's why I call him A warrior-like man, right? He was willing to pay the price to do God's will, and we need to be willing to pay the price. It's not going to stop. This is going to continue. This trend that of Jezebel will continue in society, and there will be an increasing number of men who will choose to be just simply weak and self-absorbed and act like and act childishly. Thank God for men like Jordan Peterson. Who are trying their best to reverse this trend. But this is going to continue. And that's why, as God's word, we're called to fight. Now, the word fight is not something we embrace easily. But Paul tells us to fight the good fight. In fact, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 9 that when it came to fighting, he did not shadow box. Out, what is shadow boxing? When you're just, you know, punching the air, you're on your own. And you know, he, he said, I don't shadow box. I fight a specific enemy. I fight with purpose. And I fight with his strength. In fact, I bring my body under. Another version says, I beat my body black and blue. Why do I do this? Because I'm fighting with purpose. I don't want to be at the end disqualified. So that's what we're called to do as fathers to fight for our inheritance. And that's what Naboth did. Now, the, the question is how was Naboth able to say this, not to appear? Not to a powerful man, but the most powerful man in the kingdom, to Ahab. How was he able to say this? Knowing full well how wicked he was, how godless he was, because Naboth was one of the few God-fearing men in Israel, and knowing also how wicked Jezebel was. How was he able to say no? Well, Proverbs 29, verse 25 says this. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man is a trap. When we're afraid of man, we fall into a trap. But the one who trusts in the Lord will be protected. Naboth feared God more than he feared Jezebel or Ahab. That's why. That's why he was able to say no. How will we be able to defend the inheritance that God has given us as fathers? How are we able to defend this role, our families? to walk in the ways of the Lord, to stand for righteousness. How? We don't have it in ourselves, but we can if we fear God. If we fear God, when the time comes and Jezebel comes knocking or Ahab comes knocking, we will say, no, we will draw the line in the sand. We will be able to stand against them. Now, what happened to Naboth later on is a travesty, right? Because think about it, they brought him out of the town and they stoned him to death. Now, some of you are asking, wait a minute, didn't we just read the one who trusts in the Lord will be protected? What protection is there in being stoned? How did God protect Naboth? He stood for righteousness, he followed God's laws, he said no to a king who wanted to take away his inheritance. Why? Didn't God protect him? Where's the protection? But he was protected, you see. There is a protection that escapes us, but is there. To understand it, we need to read Hebrews chapter 11, where we'll read about men and women of faith, not just uh, any kind of man. Notice what kind of faith and how God rewarded their faith, all right? Hebrews 11, we'll read. I would encourage you to read the entire chapter. We're just going to read a few verses, 32 to 35. So notice this. And what more shall I say? This is the writer speaking about individuals who had faith. For the time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Woman women received back their dead by resurrection. So he speaks about all these kinds of individuals who received special... uh, Blessings, okay. Whether it be the extinguishing of fire, whether it be escaping from the mouths of lion and so forth, the, 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 the mouths of lion. That's right. Whether it be conquering a kingdom, whatever it was, they won by their faith. And then he puts this: and others were tortured, not accepting their release. Notice how were they tortured? They were tortured while having faith. You see, faith does not mean always deliverance. Faith also means no deliverance, death. Paul, did Paul have faith in prison, knowing that he was going to be killed, that he was going to be offered as a drink offering, that he was going to die, basically? Did Paul have faith? Of course. Did James have faith? Did Stephen have faith as he was being stoned? Of course. So, the early church... That were given to slaughter. Did they die with faith or they had no faith? Of course they had faith. So what does it mean that God protects the one who trusts him? Yes, it can mean deliverance. And we see that many times in scripture. But it can also mean death. Physical death. Right? What are they protected from? They are protected from defection. They are protected from giving up on the faith. They're protected from falling apart in that moment. They stand firm with their faith. And because of that, the writer continues, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. What's a better resurrection? What's a better resurrection? Think about it. Is there a resurrection, then a better resurrection? Yes, there is. Every one of God's people will be brought to life. But those who suffered for their faith and in fact died while serving the Lord will receive a greater reward. That's a better resurrection. So Naboth, while he was not delivered from death and, while, and standing firm on the word of God, was rewarded and will be rewarded when he comes to be Resurrected. So, dads, we've received a precious inheritance. We don't want to fall into the Ahab pattern. We don't want to fight all kinds of weaknesses. And we have some within us that are personal, and we need to fight that and bring it to God and confess it with others so that the Lord gives us the grace to be the men, the mature men that we ought to be. And then, of course, we don't want to fall for the lies of the spirit of Jezebel that is prevalent in our days, that seeks to manipulate us and seeks to cause us to capitulate to this idea of men are oppressors and men cannot but be misogynistic and cannot but be deceitful. And then lastly, we want to take Naboth's example. Defend our inheritance. Stand where God's word tells us to stand, knowing that it may cost us to do so. But if we have to pay a price, God will give us the grace to pay that price. And at the end, we will get the reward for it. May the Lord give us grace to cherish, to defend, and to fight as good warriors and protect the gift of fatherhood that God gave us. Let us pray, beloved. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful gift the older I get, the more I realize what an honor it has been to be a father. We pray for those who are fathers, for those who are grandfathers and fathers to be. Lord, this is not an easy task. It's not for the faint of heart. We cannot, in our own strength, do this. We are uh, prone to make mistakes, prone to um, overreact, prone, yes, to be Childish and self-absorbed. And so we need your grace to put to death all those traits that are childish. We want to be childlike, but not childish. Help us to grow in maturity. And then, of course, to not give in to the spirit of this age, the spirit of Jezebel that is so prevalent today. Lord, thank you for the women in our lives that are godly, that are strong. They fear you. They walk with you. They've been a blessing to us as men. Our mothers, our wives, and we thank you for those. And we ask for grace. Lord, that we may be the men that you've called us to be. We think of those women who are forced not uh, to have a man or have been abandoned by their, their male counterpart and they've been forced to raise their families on their own. Give them grace, Lord, so they will not get discouraged and overwhelmed. Give us grace as a church to take care of these women and to be present there for them when the time is needed. I pray, O Lord, that you will strengthen us as a church, that we will continue to honor you and grow in your ways. And this we ask in the precious and glorious name of our Lord. Amen.